0: And um, again, we're, we're going to do our best to keep the tables and the place settings and the flowers and everything as well as we can, and uh, because we're very excited about the dinner afterwards. Well, let's, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Lord's Day, a day of rest and worship, a day of service. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word together. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, everybody, what, how are you doing on your Bible reading? What are you reading these days? Psalms. Psalms? Okay. Did you, when did you start the Psalms? How far are you? Well, I was doing another Bible reading
1: plan, and um, it took Old Testament, New Testament, some Psalms, some Proverbs, but they broke up the Psalms so much in the plan that it just never got the flow. So I said, okay, we're going to put that aside. I'm going to read the Psalms straight
0: through. Oh, that's cool. So,
1: and, and that's been much
0: better. Oh, okay, good. that's good. Well, with a couple of days—well, I guess with a couple of days off—or if you want to make Psalm one nineteen go a little bit longer, you can do it yeah. twice. Twice in a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah I have a. Uh, one of my old pastors used to go through the Psalms kind of day by day in his quiet time and just yeah. write reflections and things. So that's that's good to study, the songs of David and Asaph and Moses and, Katie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of a lot of overlap in, in those books. Anybody else? What are, you, what are y'all reading? And do we have any other chronological Bible readers? Sue, a couple of you? Yep, Eddie? Yep, good, good. Well, hey, again, let me always encourage you, uh, be in the Word, study the Word. It's, it's great. I'm going to give you a resource today. We're going to do Jonah. So we'll look at Jonah. If you're interested... Uh, a great book. this is uh, Tim Keller. He was uh, my pastor in New York City, great writer, great thinker, wrote a book called "Short Little book called "The Prodigal Prophet: Jonah and the, Jonah in the Mystery of God's Mercy." And so he, I think, writes these books kind of as he's preaching through the, the books of, of, that he's writing about. So very helpful book. if you're interested, want to go a deeper dive, no pun intended, in the book of Jonah. You are welcome to do that. Okay, let's get started. All right, I want to begin with this fill in the blank. Okay, are you ready? Fill in the blank. Jonah and the blank. The whale. The whale. Okay, that is correct. Jonah and the whale. Raise raise your hand if you said whale. Everyone say raise your hand if you did not say whale. Want to? A few of you. Okay. What else would you say beside whale? Jonah and the what? Great fish, the great fish. Great fish and the Nineveh. Nineveh. Leviathan. Good. Okay. Well, I think most people say say whale. I say whale. This we think about Jonah and the story of the whale. Uh, if you read this story in kids' books, it's always about Jonah and the whale. If you have seen the VeggieTales version of this story, it is about Jonah and the whale. Most academic books and journals about Jonah focus on the part about Jonah and the whale. There are sort of endless debates about what happened with Jonah and the whale. Now, is that true? Is this book really about Jonah and the whale? At the risk of being a contrarian, one of those prickly pastors who feels obligated by virtue of his seminary education to ruin children's stories, the story isn't really about Jonah and the whale. The story is really about Jonah and God. It's a story about God's faithfulness to Israel's most reluctant prophet. Jonah is one of the shortest books in the Bible, four chapters long, but only 48 verses long, less than two pages in most English Bibles. If I open up my Bible to the book of Jonah, it's all of one page and then a little bit of the second page. It's also a fantastic story, not just the part about Jonah and the whale. You remember the part about Jonah and the plant? Anybody remember that part? What about Jonah and the sailors? Do you remember that that chapter? What about Jonah and the repenting animals? Do you remember this? We'll get to it. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, once wrote, Jonah is almost incredible, sounding more strange than any poet's fable. If it were not in the Bible, I should take it for a lie. In a letter to a friend, Augustine of Hippo described the book of Jonah as, quote, a laughingstock of the pagans. So what do we do with this whale of a tale? Is Jonah history? Is Jonah an allegory? Is Jonah a parable? Did this really happen? Can a person really live for three days in the belly of a fish? What kind of fish? A whale, a great white shark, some sort of prehistoric dinosaur fish. You know, somebody mentioned Leviathan, which is mentioned in the Bible. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, let's take a closer look and see. Uh, How did Jonah write a poem from the belly of a fish? Have you ever thought about that? There's a whole poem in there. Did he have have a a pen? Uh, Maybe a scroll of some sort? Did he have a lamp inside of there? Now, considering that Jonah preached one of the least seeker-sensitive sermons in the history of seeker-sensitive sermons, how do we explain the fact that the murderous Ninevites all repented and came to faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel? It's sort of a strange thing, right? Well, when you read the book of Jonah, there will be times when you will shake your head at Jonah's foolishness. There's an old minstrel song called The Gospel Raft that includes the line, Jonah was a fool and as stubborn as a mule. Does that make sense of the book of Jonah? I sometimes think about that when I read the book of Jonah. There will be other moments when you find yourself looking into a mirror as you read the book of Jonah. Who is Jonah? Well, Jonah is a lot like me. Who needs the gospel as much as Jonah did? I do. We do. All right, let's look at some issues about author and date, some of the background of the book. Uh, The book doesn't explicitly state that Jonah, the main character, is the author of the book. So there are two possible explanations for this. Either uh, Jonah personally wrote the book based on his experiences, or Someone else wrote the book based on Jonah's first-hand account. But either way, in the story, uh, there's a lot of details in there that only Jonah would know. He's alone for a lot of this, whether it's in the belly of the great fish or whether it's his mission trip to Nineveh. There were no other people with him. So either he wrote the book himself or he, he sort of told it to someone who then recorded it for us. Jonah, the main character, and possible author of the book, was a prophet. We know that. Uh, He lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He reigned from 786 to 746 B.C. Now, we're not sure exactly when Jonah went to Nineveh, but if he went at the exact middle point of Jeroboam, Jeroboam II's reign, Then he would have ministered to the Ninevites 44 years before the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Does that make sense? So you remember the Assyrians were the nation that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And Jonah was sent on a missionary journey into Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Okay, just to give you a little bit of a historical parallel, that is the historical equivalent of God sending Billy Graham to evangelize the Soviet Union in 1947. Okay, so what if God told you to go behind the Iron Curtain to preach the gospel to the mass murderer Joseph Stalin in 1947? How many of you would be excited to go and how many of you would be getting on a boat to sail to South America? Right now, I bring this up as a parallel. So you begin to see that Jonah's fear, uh, even though it was rooted in unbelief and disobedience, is somewhat understandable. Uh, It was a very, very uh, big mission that God was calling him to do. This is not like us being called from here uh, to Mexico or Canada. Uh, This was a very, very violent, murderous nation. And he was going right into that nation, in the heart of the nation, at the height of their power. Okay? Now, let's consider one of the big questions always in this book is the genre of the book. Is this book historical? Is this a, a history? Or is it an allegory? Uh, is this historical or, or uh, allegorical? Is the, is the story historical like the story of David and Goliath or the David narratives? Or is it allegorical like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the the, you know, the prodigal son? Is it a story meant to be uh, teaching a deeper message even though it didn't actually happen? Now, on the allegorical side... side there are some interpreters who argue for an allegorical interpretation based on the presupposition that miracles like the things we find in the book of Jonah simply are not possible. Uh, And so this view, all miracles, including the virgin birth, including the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, are all allegorical because to naturalists, the natural world is all there is. And so anytime we find any Story or incident of supernatural events, they say, well, that couldn't possibly be ha- happen because we know that miracles do not happen. Therefore, this is an allegory. Now, some interpret any view of the Bible that to fix that is uh, is symbolic. Okay. Now, others argue that miracles are indeed possible, but that this specific story is allegorical. Uh, did. God really caused a giant fish to swallow Jonah, or is that a metaphor for God's deliverance? Uh, Do animals repent, as we see in chapter 3? How do we explain uh, this outside of an allegorical world, uh, a world like Narnia or Middle Earth or kind of the land of Oz, this sort of uh, fantasy land? On the other hand, we have historical uh, interpretations. Most interpreters who argue for a historical reading of the text point out that supernatural events are indeed possible within historical narratives. Furthermore, some of the stranger events recorded in the book of Jonah are indeed possible within the natural world itself. Even though it's rare, for example, large sea creatures can and sometimes do swallow people. Does that make sense? Here's a story. In 2021, this man, Michael Packard of Provincetown, Massachusetts, was eaten by a whale while he was scuba diving. He told WBZ CBS in Boston, After I jumped into the water, I felt this huge bump, and everything went dark. And then I felt around, and I realized, Oh my goodness, he did not say goodness, I'm in a whale's mouth, and he's trying to swallow me. Then all of a sudden, he went up to the surface and just erupted and started shaking his head. I was thrown in the air, and I landed in the water. Sounds a lot like what happened to Jonah, right? Remember how the whale or the large fish spit Jonah out onto dry land? Now, while Mr. Packard's ordeal only lasted 30 seconds as opposed to three three days, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that a large sea creature could swallow a man alive. Plus, God is God, and God can do supernatural things. That is one of the main presuppositions of our faith. Uh, God is the creator of the universe. He is not bound by the limitations of the natural universe as we are. Uh, And so God can do whatever uh, God wants to do. As the psalmist reminds us, Our God is in the heavens; He does what He pleases. Okay, but even then, within this, uh, we can't explain some of the events of Jonah within a naturalistic perspective. Uh, These things are possible in the natural world. All right. Well, what about animals repenting? That's sort of a strange part of the story. Uh, That almost sounds like something we'd find in a children's book, like Charlotte's Web, you know, or. Animal farm, not a children's story, but you have these like talking animals and animals with thoughts, you know. Here's, re- somebody read Jonah 3, verses 7 and 8. All right, so he calls on everyone to repent, including the animals. Now, at first, this seems a little bit strange, but remember that animals were considered to be part of one's household in the ancient world. The fourth commandment, for example, uh, prohibits animals from working on the Sabbath day because an animal was considered part of your household. Somebody read Exodus 20, verse 10, fourth commandment. So do you see all of the, the sojourner, the livestock, the son, the daughter, the servants, all of those individuals, and uh, including the animals, were considered part of your household. And so when the city of Nineveh repents, and we read about repenting animals, uh, this is not um, sort of a you know, fable or story where we say, oh, these are like talking animals and things. No, no, the animals were part of, of these people's households. And so the entire household repented. There was greater uh, community solidarity in this than we find in the Western world, which tends to be more individualistic in, in that sense. All right, well, what did Jesus believe about Jonah, the book of Jonah? The strongest argument in favor of a historical interpretation of the book comes from the lips of Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. Somebody read this one, Matthew 12. Forty through forty-one.
1: For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they. Rep-
0: So first, Jesus compared his three days in the grave with Jonah's three days in the belly of the great fish. And then he said that real Ninevites will rise up at the last day uh, on a real judgment day to judge the real people that he's talking to at that very moment uh, for their rebellion and their unbelief. It's hard to believe that Jesus would speak this way if he believed the book of Jonah was allegorical. He clearly treats the story as if it was a historical event, that these things actually happened in real history. A little Bible Interpretation 101. When in doubt, agree with Jesus. (laughs) All right, let's look at the literary style of the book. Uh, Jonah is written very skillfully, which makes it uh, really delightful to read. The book of Jonah uses contrasting words and phrases throughout the book, highlight some of the differences between Jonah, God, and the other characters in the story. So for example, one example is the repeated use of the phrases going up and going down. In Jonah 1 verses 2 and 3, God told Jonah to arise and go up to Nineveh. How did Jonah respond? You remember? Jonah responded by going down to Joppa, all right? In Jonah 1, verses 5 and 6, we're told that Jonah went down into the belly of the ship. There was a large storm, and then what did the sailors say? You remember? The sailors said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. So throughout this story, the reader ends up sensing that Jonah is like a man going the wrong way on an escalator. He goes down when he should be going up, and he goes up when he should be going down. That's sort of part of the, the subtle humor of the book. Everyone else in the story is going the right way, and Jonah, the prophet of God, is always going the wrong way until the very end. All right, uh, structure of the book There's many ways to outline the book. I highlighted one of them here. In uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, kind of serve as an introduction to the book. We have Jonah's commissioning. God tells uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh, the great city, and then Jonah goes the opposite direction. Then we have in chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, Jonah and the pagan sailors. Then we have in... Chapter 1, verse 17 through 2, verse 10, Jonah's grateful prayer. Okay. And then notice the, the parallel. Notice the structures. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Jonah is recommissioned. Only now, instead of running the other way, he agrees. He complies. He says, okay, I'll go. Then we have Jonah and the pagan Ninevites, See, that's kind of in parallel with Jonah and the pagan sailors. And then instead of an angry, a grateful prayer, in four verses one through four, we have Jonah's angry prayer. He's angry against the Lord. The end conclusion is Jonah's lesson about compassion. That's the part about the plan. So do you see? So His commissioning, and then he runs away, is parallel with his commissioning and his compliance. You have Jonah and the pagan sailors, which is parallel with Jonah and the pagan Ninevites. Then you have Jonah's grateful prayer, the beautiful prayer that he prays from the belly of the fish, which is contrasted with Jonah's angry prayer at the end. So all these things are very subtle, but they really demonstrate that the writer of the book is A masterful writer. Uh, We always, when we're trying to write, it's helpful to use little parallelisms and contrasts which help to move the story along. It makes it more enjoyable to read. All right, let's look at uh, theological themes. The big theological theme in the book is God's surprising grace. We talked about that a little bit, about how Jonah is always going the wrong direction and the pagans are always going in the right direction. You know, Jonah is like, he knows God, he knows the Lord, he's a prophet of the Lord. He's always the last one to believe, whereas everybody else instantly believes. So it is kind of funny. In Jonah 1, God told Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh for their evil or distress has come up before me. Jonah resisted because he feared the people of Nineveh would repent and then God would forgive them. That is something that Jonah did not want to happen. <laughs> he, was, he was like, I don't want these people to, to repent. I want you to judge them. You remember, uh, was it, the, it was the, the sons of thunder? So they wanted to call down judgment upon the cities that rejected Jesus. Somebody read Jonah 3.10 through 4 verse 2. <laughs> It's sort of striking, is it not? You would expect Jonah to be the first one who would want God to be merciful to these people. He doesn't want that. He wants judgment. He wants condemnation, and God is completely the opposite. We might expect if we have sort of a surface level reading or or maybe even based on some of the things we've read in some of the other uh, prophets, we think about Obadiah and his God's condemnation on the on uh, Edom and on some of the other condemnations, we might think Oh, well, God just simply wants to wipe these people out. The last thing that he wants to do is be merciful to them and forgive them. But it's completely the opposite. God is the merciful one. And Jonah, like some of us sometimes, want to start striking people down. Right? It turns out that God sent Jonah to Nineveh because he loved the Ninevites and he wanted them to repent. Again, this is... Shocking, given the murderous history of the Ninevites. They were God's enemies in every sense of the word, and yet God was gracious to them. Okay, here's a question for us. Jonah struggled with grace. Do you ever struggle with grace? Do you have people, individuals or groups, who you view as so beyond the pale that you would never share the gospel with them? Do you have any of those people or groups where you have such animosity that you say, "Ugh, I never want to tell that person about the Lord." What about somebody like old uh, bin Laden? You know what about some American politicians that you don't like and you thought man i i don't want I want them to be judged I don't want them to you know come over to my side. I want them on the other side. I want to fight those people right um Maybe someone in your own family who has really hurt you or sinned against you in a pretty profound way where you think, I don't want that person to repent. I want God's justice. I want God to deal with that person. It'd be the worst, almost the worst thing if they came to faith at the last minute of their life. I would, I would almost resent that. You were a jerk your whole life, and five minutes before you died, you came to faith? No way. I don't want that.
1: Hey, Joel?
0: Yes. I was wondering if Tom was thinking all over. <laughs> Yes, the head coach of Auburn or something. I don't know. We have people like that. All right, let's look at God's surprising grace then to the sailors. In chapter 2, the sailors urged Jonah to call out to his God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Jonah was reluctant to do so. Now, just a quick side note here. um, It's very rare in the Bible for people who are outside the covenant community to use the specific name of Yahweh the specific name of the lord in your english bible it's lord all capital usually foreign people speak of god more generically uh, but in this case they say cry out to your god and they specifically invoke yahweh when the sailors finally agreed to throw jonah overboard because jonah said hey listen throw me overboard and the storm will cease they prayed O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, that, that seems like a prayer that Jonah should be praying. And yet, in God's surprising grace, these pagan sailors, and believe me, sailors were as rough back then as they are today. You know, we sort of say somebody curses like a sailor or talks like a sailor. That's not a modern invention. That's sort of been a throughout history type of thing. And yet these sailors are invoking the the Yahweh, the the name of God, um, in order to to plead for for mercy here. All right. Surprising grace for the Ninevites. In chapter 3, Jonah preached a less-than-seeker-sensitive sermon to the Ninevites. He said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That's chapter three, verse five. Very surprising. Do you believe that God can save anyone? Why or why not? Name some of the most surprising or unlikely converts to the Christian faith that you have ever seen. Anybody? Who can you think of? Jeffrey Dahmer, who maybe came to faith right before he died. Mm-hmm. Chuck, Colson. Chuck Colson, who was part of the Watergate conspiracy, became a Christian, lived a long, faithful life, uh, you know, prison ministry, gospel ministry. Anybody else? Rosalie, um,
1: champagne
0: Yeah, um, she, Rosaria. Uh, Champagne Butterfield, who was a professor of, I think, women's studies at uh, Syracuse University, Uh, uh, active, living a a lesbian life, Uh, not married, I don't think it was legal back then, but essentially common law married to someone who came to faith in Jesus Christ through simple gospel ministry with a local pastor and his wife who invited her uh, into their home. C.S. Lewis, yeah, great example. C.S. Lewis came to faith, um, did not believe in God at all. And then through simple gospel ministry, through his friends, uh, J.R. Tolkien, among others, who witnessed to him over many years. Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, huge example, enemy uh, of God, anti-Christian terrorist. And yet he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The centurion who was crucifying Jesus said, truly this man was the son of God. It's always hard for me to think that without hearing it in John Wayne's voice. Have you seen the film? Uh, What is it, the greatest story ever told? John Wayne has a cameo in there at the very end. And then he goes, truly this man was the son of God. One line. He was the best guy in the whole movie. The thief on the cross. So, Zacchaeus. The, as we look closer in, into the scripture and into people that we know in modern examples, we see over and over again that there is no such thing as a person who is beyond God's reach. I think we know that intellectually, but oftentimes maybe we shy away from sharing the gospel with people because we think, oh, this person is too far gone. Oh, this person is... This person is too liberal, this person is too wild, this person is too this or too that, or maybe they're a, they're a faithful member of another religion, so we don't want to talk to them about the Lord. No one on earth is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. And even, uh, you think of Jonah. Jonah was not exactly sort of a Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis apologist type of person. He preached a pretty poor sermon where he, and he didn't want them to convert at all. He was almost like a Calvinist, you know, he, how he shared the gospel. He's sort of almost like kind of halfway trying to talk them out of it, you know. But they all believed. They all believed. So you could talk to anyone about the Lord, and who knows? If God is at work, then they will believe. All right, surprising grace for a disgruntled prophet. Jonah himself was a recipient of God's grace. In the end, God demonstrated that while Jonah did care about the death of a tree that gave him shade from the heat, he didn't care about the death of 120,000 Ninevites. The point is that he should care, and we should care much more than we do about lost people. Our default position tends to be revenge and, and judgment. God's default position is grace. There's grace for everyone who believes. Now let's look ahead to Jesus. The Ninevites were saved through the the figurative death and resurrection of Jonah. Jonah went into the belly of the fish for three days. He essentially, uh, symbolically, rose from the dead. He had sort of a resurrection from the belly of the great fish. And we are saved through the literal death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's sort of the parallel. Remember the the parallel that Jesus makes? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so also I will be in the belly of the earth for three days. Just as Jonah rose up out of the fish, so also I will rise up from the dead. Now consider the tale of two men. Let's look at kind of the contrast here. These two men grew up hundreds of years apart in two villages which were about three miles away from each other. The city where Jonah grew up was about three miles away from Nazareth. One was named Jonah, the son of Amittai. His name means Dove, the son of truth. He had a good life in a good place. God told him, Jonah, I want you to go to a dangerous place. For the sake of people that I love who are facing terrible judgment. And Jonah said, what? No, I'm not going. Now consider the other man who is named Jesus, not the son of Amittai, but the son of God. His name means Savior, and he called himself the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He lived an amazing life in an amazing place. He lived in heaven. He was the ruler of the universe. God told him, I want you to go to a dangerous place. You will be totally rejected. You'll be crucified. You will die in the place of people uh, that I love and for the sake of people that I love who are facing terrible judgment. Jesus said, yes, I will go. That's a picture of God's surprising grace. God's grace is for runners. God's grace is for rebels and cowards and sinners. Once you receive Jesus, the Savior, who did what Jonah was so reluctant to do, you can stop running, knowing that no matter what, God is always running after you. That's the story of the book of Jonah. Any questions, any reflections
1: since his his message was judgment and they were a ruthless people and and that he he wouldn't go because of fear and i think fear often keeps us from going
0: to speak to somebody that mm-hmm. might lash out in a not very nice way um, true and but what's interesting is yeah that he would you know that's one way to think about it is well maybe he was just afraid they were going to kill him there mm-hmm. but what's A little interesting twist there is throughout the story, Jonah's not afraid to die. Remember, they threw him over into the water. He kept insisting, throw me overboard. And they're like, we don't want to do this. Give us like five more minutes. We'll, We'll get through this storm. So he did not appear to be afraid to die. He was afraid that they would believe. He was afraid that God would be merciful to the Ninevites. So it is absolutely true that we sometimes are—we we fear talking to people about Jesus for other reasons. Maybe they'll reject us, or maybe they'll, they'll think we're not smart or not sophisticated, or maybe they won't want to be our friend anymore. Maybe they'll, they'll think that we are judging them, and so we don't want them to think that. But in his case, he actually kind of had more of a pharisaical, uh, legalistic view toward the Ninevites. And he did, he was not a fan of God's grace at all. He he just didn't want them to believe. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts, Book of Jonah? Yes, Tim. I think
1: uh, in all prophets there's uh, there's so much pronouncement of judgment coming. But uh, and that's all it'll say, but it always implies
0: there's always an, <coughs> an implication unless you say, mm, that Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Did you hear that? There's a lot of judgment talk in the prophets and it doesn't, it's not always as explicit as this, that there is grace for all who repent and believe. Even in the Old Testament. That's not a New Testament invention where it's like, well, Old Testament was all about God's judgment. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and it's all about grace, you know, and just repent and believe. Judgment and grace are interwoven in both the Old and New Testaments. And remember, uh, at the very end, if you read the book of Revelation, Jesus is coming on a white horse. He's got a sword in his his hand, a sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. And so there is always that kind of parallel uh, judgment and mercy. There is judgment for those who reject God and are enemies of God But God's enemies always have the opportunity to become his friends through repentance and faith. Always. Good point. Any other thoughts? Book of Jonah? Yes, Tim.
1: What about the psalm?
0: Yes, yeah, throughout the scriptures, um, David and others do pray sort of what they call them imprecatory psalms, uh, psalms against their enemies. Now, I think that that's appropriate in, in the scriptures, and it is I think appropriate for us to pray for the thwarting of our thwarting of our enemies and the thwarting of Satan's plan while also holding out hope for repentance and faith. And I think that that's kind of the balance with David, in the, even in the imprecatory Psalms. He's praying not for sort of pers- you know, for personal reasons or sort of personal condemnations. He sees his enemies, because he's the king of Israel, as the enemies of the Lord. And he's wanting them to be stopped in their plans. So it's appropriate for us to say, Um, You know, for example, you think about, uh, you know, terrorists or people that would sort of go into a bus and blow up a bus. We can pray that God would stop that, that God would prohibit them from getting on the bus, that God would stop the bomb from going off, that God would stop them in any way possible, but also laying out hope that perhaps God might stop them by changing their hearts and having them encounter, having an encounter with God so that they might be saved. So it's, it's kind of a, a both and. On the one hand, we do pray in precatory Psalms that God would stop the people that are sinning against us, but the ultimate method of stopping that would be to change their heart. Good, good question. Anybody else? Yes. Jonah's mind.
1: No, God. Um, God changed. Did God change God's mind? Did He change His mind about not not bringing judgment unto the Ninevites? And um, you know, because you you, you think sometimes in some of the prayers, did God change His mind about what He was going to do? Mm-hmm. But then, um, in thinking about it more, no. Evil and sin always results. It is, and repentance results in life. Mm-hmm. And so, no, 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 there's no changing. If they were unrepentant, yes, yeah, they would have been destroyed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, good question, and it's always something we wrestle with because mm-hmm. it sort of takes us into the mind of God, which is very, very, a very, very precarious place to be for us as human beings. When we think about, uh, at times in the scriptures, God appears to, from a human perspective change his mind. Okay, they were destined for destruction, and then they repented, and then God was merciful. Well, was he merciful because of their repentance? Or, you know, ultimately God knew that they would repent, and so it's sort of from a human, we're talking sort of from a human perspective versus from a God perspective. It's very complicated. Ultimately, God does not change his mind uh, because He is eternal, and he has a plan from before the foundation of the the earth. He says all of our days are written in his book. Uh, He talks about God's people as being known from before the foundation of the earth. And so nothing surprises God, and God's not reacting to us. But at the same time, it's sort of a, a mystery of how that actually plays out in history and in our experience. We call on people to repent and believe the gospel. And... What that looks like in terms of what God is doing in their heart and what God is working in them, again, it's, it's a mystery. We can't be hunting for people who are, you know, uh, elect or not elect and be like, well, this guy's probably elect, so I'll share with him. We don't know. We don't know. Or would this guy have come to faith if I didn't share the gospel with him? I'm, I, ultimately, yeah, probably, but we still have to share the gospel with them because that's what the Bible says to do. So it's a little bit of a mystery. Any other thoughts? Jonah? Mind of God? Anyone else? Impossible questions? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it really is. Because, I mean, he could have just said, hey, just, you know, just like no, uh, Jonah was in the fish, so I'll be in the grave. I mean, that might be certain, you know, I could say, you know, just like, uh, you know, Lucy and Peter were in, went into Narnia, you know, then I'm going to do this. But he doesn't, it would be weird if I said, hey, uh, Lucy and Peter are going to judge you on judgment day. It's like, well, wait a minute, They're, they do not exist. That's a fictional story, you know? It's like, that would be weird to, you could only say that if those were actual people and that actually happened. Yeah, good good point. Frank, do you have something? I was
1: just going to say, you know, I haven't read John on the Bible, but it seems to me he was angry even at the very end of the book of John. hmm
0: yes that's true now that's a good point frank makes a lot of times these books end uh because they are real history they end with ellipses where we might expect a period or an exclamation point or maybe uh, with a question mark where we might expect an exclamation point they're not so tidy uh, as you know fables or fairy tales where we get oh and they all lived happily ever after most of the time there's a little bit of ambiguity at the end Now, we can assume based on the fact that Jonah wrote this book that he did come to faith and he did come to repent and he did come to see things from God's perspective. He either wrote the book or he told it to somebody else who wrote the book. But either way, it's essentially Jonah's first-person account. So we can kind of assume that he came to faith in the end. But by leaving it a little bit ambiguous, what the narrator is doing is He's pushing the question off of Jonah and onto you. What are you going to do with this? You know, Jonah has the chance to either submit to God and say, yes, God is a God of mercy, and I praise him and I rejoice. Or are you, as the reader, going to harden your heart and say, I reject God, God did it wrong, he should have followed my plan, and not the other way around. So it's kind of putting it back on you as the reader to say, all right, what's it going to be?
1: One thing that struck me when you were, when we were reading about uh, Jonah's response at the end and how he perceived God brought to mind the parable of the talents and the third servant who buried
0: yeah, a little bit of a parable with a parable, a parallel with the parable of the talents and the man who says he buries it and he goes, well, I knew that you're, you're a harsh manager and that, you know, you reap where you do not sow and all. And, and um, he, our view of who God is really radically shapes the way we live in the world. And if we believe that God is merciful, we believe that God is generous, we believe that God loves us, we believe that he wants us to, glorify him by and through enjoying him well that that's a very different life than if we think well okay God's up here he's like the teacher kind of watching us all and if we step out of line or we talk and we shouldn't talk then here comes the punishment that's not who who God God is obviously there are consequences to our actions but God is merciful he's gracious he's gracious to people like Jonah and people like the sailors, and people like the Ninevites, and it's very surprising. I think all of us can look, I hope, at our own life and say, as we read the book of Jonah and think about it, I'm so thankful that God was gracious to me. You know, I mention this sometimes, uh, my favorite line in when Kate's grandma tells her story about how she came to faith and how the missionaries came to their door and you know shared the gospel with them she says we were the least deserving people in all of Philadelphia <laughs> you know that that was her perspective that these missionaries came to their door and we were the least deserving people in all of Philadelphia and i think that if you are a christian there has to be part of your story that says i was the least deserving person in all of Pensacola. I was the least deserving person in wherever you're from. And yet God is merciful. Well, with that thought, we're going to wrap it up and go to worship and we'll see you next week with Micah. Ready for Micah? Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your grace. It is amazing. It is surprising. Lord, we are often hard and cynical and do not believe that you can be as gracious as you are to us to other people lord we pray that you would allow this story of jonah and the story of your surprising amazing grace overwhelm us soften our hearts change our hearts and that we might be truly gracious people as we interact with others in this world lord we thank you that you are sovereign over all things including plants and fish and prodigal prophets. Lord, we with us now and impress that on our hearts even as we prepare for worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, everybody.